Hello, my name is Akoto Ulubai, and welcome to the fifth episode of the Fanificast. This week's episode is about the African Union and African countries working together for our collective prosperity. Our guest for today is Olemo Bran. He is joining us from, he's Ugandan and he's joining us from Johannesburg, South Africa. Welcome, Olemo. Thank you very much, Akoto. Thank you very much for this opportunity to just share and to listen in on the discussion as well. We shall start off with the history of the African Union. For obvious who may not know, the African Union, it's a socio-political organization headquartered in Addis Ababa in Ethiopia that seeks to strive for African unity. And it was founded by 32 African countries that were independent at the time. And the aims of the OAU were to push for the independence and liberation of all African states that were still colonized and ensure the sovereignty of the newly independent African states. However, in the OAU, there was a schism, an ideological schism between the route of which the group should take. So the first one was called the Casablanca group headed by Kwame Nkrumah of Ghana which wanted a political federation of all African states. And then the second was the Monrovia group led by Leopold Senghor of Senegal, which wanted gradual integration via economic cooperation, but not political integration. So, Lemo, what are your thoughts on the OAU and how it later was disbanded and rebranded as the African Union in 2002? It's important to, to, to look at the context. I mean, you define the African Union as a social political vehicle or a social political organization. But I think a big part of um, just the social political that we leave out is the economics. The economics is a very um, essential part when we are talking about the OAU and the African Union. Of course, back in the day, we had the Afri Organization of African Unity, and we are looking at the fact that the problems that we had then matches it was more about building african nations like building them from the ground up and helping countries that have not yet attained independence to attain independence and you have the likes of Nkrumah who believe that the independence of ghana the uhuru of ghana is incomplete if other african nations are not independent and then you have people who actually believe that we have this one continental super state that's when you have the casablancans who are arguing for that but then you have the Monrovians as well, Senghor and his group who think that we need to, instead of fast tracking and becoming one continental super state, why can't we go step by step? And I think um, it is that, like that divide and that uh, divergence that as much as really decided what the politics of the continent has looked from then on. Um, because now when, when, when you trace history and then you look at the fact that now, the, organ the African Union that was formed uh, after disbanding the Organization of African Unity, the problems that we're focusing on right now are problems whose origins can be traced to the decisions that were made during the days of the OAU. When you look at the fact that we have achieved political independence yet, yes, mm -hmm. but political freedom is incomplete without economic freedom. And that's what Africans are trying to fight for right now. How do we attain uh, economic freedom? How do we... Uh, as you've seen, the, the agenda 2063 and that aspiration, people-driven development. How do we ensure that Africans can own capital and they can drive their own economies? How do we reduce the influence of the West uh, in our economies, the West, China, and all these other global players that are 
investing in our economies and on top of reducing that how do we improve ensure that if they're coming in they're coming in under our own condition so i think this is something that can always be traced back and uh it was just it started from that divide the monrovians and the casablancans so in your view which was the better path to take because the monrovia block are the ones who clearly won because they are still trying to achieve what the Casablanca block wanted from the outset to a degree and would the federation of african states really have even been realistically plausible even in this day and age yes i want to believe that uh, having one continental super state called africa is not just a dream uh, it's an aspiration that can be realized uh, and should be realized integrated continent a continent that is politically united that has um, one government that has one economy with a bigger market uh, with um, movement of people and goods and labor and all these factors of production and a continent of course that subscribes to the ideals of, of pan africanism you know uh, with a view of bringing back africa and allowing africa to have a voice in 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 the global conversation and to sit at the political table that other nations are able to sit on. Definitely, I would imagine that I would think that the view of the Casablancans, the Kwame Nkrumahs and the likes would have really been something that could have helped Africa. Because you have to look at the economics of it. Back then, Nkrumah himself faced a very big dilemma. So every single African state, we are looking towards self-determination, right? We want to establish nations that are independent, that, has, that have self-determination, that want to be um, less dependent on the West and their former colonial masters. Yeah. But then to do that, you want to create infrastructure, right? You want to come up with all these energy projects. You want to build a Kasombo Dam. You want to exploit the natural resources that you have, like the DRC, that's a very rich country. You want to be able to do all these things. Mm-hmm. But then the dilemma here is that it's a, it's a catch to you, you You want to build infrastructure. And then how the question African leaders were faced with was, how do you develop without capital? Yeah. You know, how do you develop without money? So essentially, uh, th- that's impossible. So you have to go back to your colonial masters. And uh, for so many people, that was very regrettable. Um, Lumumba, for example, threatened to go to the Russians and the CIA took him out. Nkrumah, with, 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 with his anti-imperialist um, sentiment and views, could not want, did not want to go to the West, but inevitably he had to go and seek funds from there. And then now you find us coming into this sort of economic imperialism, this new age of um, neo-colonialism because we have acquired capital and uh, we accumulate debts over time that we cannot pay. And then you now see the influx of neoliberal policies in, in the 90s, yeah. by the West is saying for us to forgive, for us to give debt relief, there's going to be conditional lending. And the condition is you have to open up your economies. And who are we opening up our economies to? The West, because if you embrace neoliberal policies, you don't have the capital as a country internally to invest in your own economy. Times were complex. Um, African countries were at different levels, but we shared problems. Yeah, we shared problems. Uh, we shared potential. We shared resources. Uh, in Southern Africa, for example, we had diamonds. You have diamonds in Botswana. You have diamonds in South Africa. And if we are all working as one smooth machine back at the time, as one continental super state, uh, you could have seen that we could have had a big influence on the politics of the world. And I think it would have turned down, turned out differently if we had embraced the route that the Casablancans had chosen because 
we, we went with the Monrovians, we went with the Sengoros, and Africa is quite uh, captured right now. And I think more and more, uh, the hope for unity, the hope for true integration becomes less and less, and we are still making very baby steps. And yet, if we had come together, grown together as a continent, we would have been able to make, I think, fundamental economic and uh, political strides uh, could have gotten us way, 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 way further than, you know, we would have been. Look at the United States, for example, as an example of the Federation. And I think that is something that Africa could have emulated. On the idea of integration, personally, I would not want an African Federation. I see it as physically and politically impossible because it's already such a large continent with billions upon billions of people. We shall expand more on this a bit later in the podcast, but I think perhaps the best route for Africa to go would be something similar to the European Union, but with perhaps slightly less integration. And I say this because the level of the European Union has given up a lot, a lot of sovereignty, and I don't think that's something we are economically able to do currently or even politically willing to do currently. Safe for now, I'd rather on economic integration. Political integration, not so much. We could work together politically, but not necessarily to the point of, say, federation. But, say, we could give up some sovereignty to the African Union to make certain decisions. Those are personally sure. Also, on to the African Union today, uh, some of the achievements of the African Union. And also, in this day and age, many Africans feel like the African Union is useless and not really helping our lives. Because last year, throughout 2020, there have been several crises on the African continent. The African Union has kept quiet about or mismanaged things like in Mali, SARS movement in Nigeria due to police brutality, the fraudulent Ugandan elections, the francophone crisis in Cameroon. Greatest failure, I'd say, thus far is what happened to Gaddafi and Libya, and Libya is now a failed state. And the latest crisis on the African continent is ongoing civil, I'm not sure if it, let's just say it, it's a conflict that if not addressed is now rapidly moving towards civil war and genocide in the Tigray region of Northern Ethiopia. So there are all these things on the African continent and the African Union view and the view of millions of Africans is essentially doing nothing. I think it's, I mean, that, that's a lot of stuff that we, we, we could unpack um, scenario by scenario. Mm-hmm. Uh, but before we even talk about the gains uh, and achievements of the AU, we, we, we have to sort of go back to your statement before that uh, NATO super state is an implausible idea and that you think we need to look towards economic um, cooperation and economic integration. And I think mm-hmm. you did mention lack of political will there. And yeah, it's, it's true, it's true. The, the political will is not as um, it's not as existent and prominent as we would love for it to be um, towards a Pan-Africanist vision, because if you're Pan-Africanist, then you believe in 
in the continental super state. But I think it comes down to how empowered do we actually think this organization is? Um, mm-hmm. How empowered do we think it is politically? How empowered do we think it is economically to be a key player in term, times of conflict, in times of crisis in the different African countries? And uh, is it just a detached? Because I, I think the sentiment is that it's just a detached body uh, of technocrats uh, yeah. that are best somewhere in Addis Ababa, staying in, 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 in in a headquarters that is built by the Chinese, basically. But I think the question is how much power does the AU actually have to exercise the expectations that we need uh, to exercise? When I I think the the disappointment has been there. We will talk about the games, but the disappointments, of course, have been there. That, for example, you look at Mali, uh, the the coup in Mali, you look at it taking a position, or at least for for example, in the coup in Sudan, it taking the, the the backing Bashir, who was overthrown by people, the people's revolution, essentially. Okay. Then you see the AU failing to recognize the transitional government that is coming in. Then you see the fact that the continent experiences a lot of police brutality, and that was even where the highest resurgence of that during the COVID period as governments tried to enforce lockdown regulations. But the AU is not taking any particular stance on these issues, but then you now see okay. that we are having um, police brutality in the United States and the George Floyd and Black Lives Matter protests, and the AU is taking a position on that. And so all these events keep reminding people that really, uh, what are the ends that the AU is trying to achieve? Why is it that we cannot condemn our own police brutality within the continent? And mm-hmm. much as um, we're Pan-Africanists and Black people in the United States, we, we need to be able to feel the same injustice. But why is it that the AU is not bringing to light the issues of uh, people on the continent? So it, it begs the question of who is this organization serving, essentially? Okay. And on the other end, uh, yeah. Then could we then argue the African Union mm-hmm. is failing because African countries have simply chosen to let it fail because leading up recently and out about 97% of the EU's mm. programs that it wishes to undertake are donor funded. So how can you even say you're promoting the interests of Africans if you're mainly funded by Westerners? And then another thing is that I saw that some African states had their things like their voting powers at the EU revoked because they were not meeting their obligations to pay their money to help fund the African Union. So African governments are not failing to fund their own African Union and do not have the political will to listen to the African Union or to empower it. So then could you then argue we have no one to blame but ourselves? I think, of course, it, it, it goes, I mean, you did mention some very important points. I think it goes back to your own stance, which I think you question on, uh, mm-hmm. on Pan-Africanism and, and the, the result of the African Union and what should be serving. Mm-hmm. The truth, Akoto, is mm-hmm. we're a poor continent. Mm-hmm. We don't have enough wealth. We don't have enough money, or at least we are not creating enough of it. Mm-hmm. And if we are creating enough of it, we are not actually doing it ourselves. And if it's being done, by the people that are taking wealth out of this country. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, economies are growing, but we are still not where we could be. And that's why you see, um, you go to a place like the African Development Bank, and you realize that countries like the United States have shares that yeah, yeah, money yeah, we are yeah, actually yeah, spending yeah. from ADB is not African money. 
then you, you look at the fact that we are depending on donor funding for, for almost everything. So we don't have that money. I oh, think it's worth noting that the United States is the second largest shareholder after Nigeria, the Africa Development Bank. And last year, there was an attempt by the American government to oust the current head of the AFDB, who is a Nigerian, uh, on corruption charges, and it, but it failed. Akinumi Adesina, if I'm not mistaken, uh, he yeah. was the yeah. head of the African Development Bank. Yes. So I, I think that is the paradox that, and then we are facing a similar problem that we face post-colonialism. How do we come together? How do we unite? How do we grow without capital? Open the economies to, to, to the West and to every other global player that wants to invest. Uh, we, we, we've sold our oil wells to the West. We've, um, for the most part, we, we, we've done all these things, but at the same time, we want to unite, right? We want to be able to be sustainable. We want to have people-driven de development. We want to have a strong identity as an African. We, Africans we want to have economic freedom. So I think that, like, that is the position that the African Union finds itself. And at a certain point, the leaders of Africa will have to decide, so it's, um, it's like is it something that we need to front for? Mm -hmm. So yes. then are we in a catch-22 uh, whereby we need money and capital to move on, but we don't have that money and capital to move on, so we just submit? I think we are in that sort of situation. But the other aspect of it is that we need to understand our position. Mm -hmm. um, as far as the, the global village and the global politics is concerned, mm -hmm. Africa is still a very endowed continent. We have mm -hmm. the resources. We are supplying the West with diamonds. We're supplying gold. We have uh, copper. We have cobalt. We have uh, this mineral that we had in DRC. And but still, we're a poor continent. And yet, we are supplying most of these resources outside. And we have a very big market of over three billion people. So then we wonder why is it that we are still in the position that we are in, uh, where we think, where we feel that we do not have wealth, and yet we have all these resources. And I think that's why unity makes more sense. That if we have diamonds, and then we come together as countries that produce diamonds, and then we are bargaining, we have a larger bargaining power in the global scale, and then we can produce capital, and then if investors come to the continent, we have uh, better terms to bargain, and we can advocate for them. To invest on the continent on our own terms, on our own terms, on terms that will develop um, the, the continent itself. So I think, how do we? The foreign direct investments are there, but how do we one come together as a continent mm -hmm. economically and have one voice politically as well? Uh, and, and if you have one voice politically as well, it, it's easier for us to consolidate forces and, and and work together to solve the crisis that we have in the okay. individual African uh, states. So I think it comes back to the unity and the economy. So then how then do you think we can African Union and then make sure it works that when there is a, when there are issues on the continent that people speak up and actually do try to come to amicable and amicable solution. So, uh, allow me to answer this question in this way. Um, okay. What is the theme of the African Union this year? Um, Silencing the guns, right? And they failed, Mister. No, 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 no. The aim of the African Union was to oh, silence. Oh, that, was the that guns. last year? Yeah, that was last year. The aim of the African Union was to silence the guns in Africa That's by right. 2020, which was to end civil wars and all other kinds of conflict. But they have clearly and obviously failed, Mister. 
uh, aim is to silence the guns, right? Last year, uh, and uh, you have President Cyril Ramaphosa, Ramaphosa, sorry, of South Africa being the AU chairman, yeah. And then you look at the level of political will. You look at the fact that every year we are moving the leadership of the African Union from one president to another, but no one is showing a genuine uh, conviction and a genuine will to actually fast track the process of, you know, of integration. And for me, from the look of things, if I'm to just look into my crystal ball right now, mm -hmm. I don't know if the agenda 2063, which is a very good, a very well laid out uh, agenda and aspiration mm -hmm. can actually be achieved by 2063. 2063 looks um, far, away, far away, but yeah. believe me, it's just uh, corner. It's around the corner for- 22 years from now. Because the goals that we have, yeah, the goals we have are very lofty goals, very lofty goals. And uh, as a continent, we need, leaders who are committed to the ideals of pan-Africanism okay. and what, a vision of an African renaissance. Okay, what, yeah? what I think is that cannot work until, to an extent, the own national politics of our individual states, because you see, it's a stereotype, but unfortunately it is mostly true that African governments have corrupt leaders real leaders, civil leaders. So when we send, when these same governments that have those same characteristics send people to Addis Ababa in the African Union, or whether it's the African parliament in that's headquartered in Cape Town, uh, can we really expect different from them if the same governments, you see what they do at home, and they're the ones sending these people out there to apparently mm -hmm. represent us and work for us in our totality as a continent. I don't really think we can expect per se. So national politics works in various countries to an extent, then the African Union itself will work and be more empowered. For me, when, and, and uh, something maybe to just add to what you've said, Dr. Nkosana Moyo, um, he, he, he did a TED talk once. Yes, the, the self-enslavement of Africans. The self enslavement of Africans uh, yeah. in, I think it was in ALU, where 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 he says, uh, you know, you get credibility from running your own space effectively. Yes. And why Africans uh, are always suffering? African representatives. We talked about it on the global stage. Is because we are sending people because of the politics of patronage. So our diplomats are not people who actually most times merit the positions that they have. They are yeah. not technical people in their areas of in the areas of supposed expertise, but that have been chosen for these diplomatic missions because of their affiliation to the government, the local government. So he categorized them as unimaginative, lazy, uninnovative, and uh, we, we, we tend to externalize our problems, yeah? And so I think you, you make a fair point, you make a fair point uh, there when you talk about the, uh, the people who represent us at uh, these, these, these national levels, you, you, you do. Um, you, you do make a fair point that we, we need better representation. We need better representation at the helm. But I also, when I look at it, I don't think that politics should be the best for us to unite. I think that something that the African or the African continental super state could do is help uh, better the internal politics of, of, of various African countries. Because across the board, African politics is not the same. It is, it's in a flux. Different countries are facing different 
um, challenges and having very unique histories and very unique um, origins post-independence. Mm-hmm. But if we united as a continent, I, I tend to look beyond the, beyond the AU because the AU is just a precursor mm-hmm. for a continental super state. The, 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 the aim is an integrated continent, right? So I'm thinking yeah. the politics of the continent would be better if we have uh, if we have one country, if we have one united continent where other states are just uh, so, overseen by, by by one larger body, and that will come with its own complexities. But I think or, the latter solves the former problem you mentioned. Or I think mm-hmm. Africans need to prevent. There's actually there's a good precedent of what you're talking about set by the European Union because the uh, end of reign in Spain, I'm wrong, but I think there's also a dictatorship in, yes, um, yeah, there's also a dictatorship in Portugal that ended in the 70s. So sometime in the 70s, dictatorship ended in Spain and Portugal. At the end of the Cold War, with the newly liberated East and Central European countries, countries like Estonia, Poland, Hungary, the Czech Republic, all countries were helped by the European Union to economically and foster democracy after they joined it. But you see, this did not happen in a vacuum. It is countries that already democratic for some time, like the UK, which was a member at the time, like France, Mm. Germany, actually helped these countries foster. Whereas here on Africa, of countries that could play the same role as say Germany and France played in the European Union to foster democracy are somewhat limited. And if they're there, I'm not sure they really have political and economic power to force these countries to reform because I'd say the credible the countries that could do this credibly are say South Africa, Maurice extent. And I've said Kenya, but as a Kenyan looking at the political situation in this country, I'd say for now no. So the number of countries that can foster and push for democracy are quite and the only one that has real power to really influence the others is South Africa. But you see South Africa own issues whereby the destiny of South Africa to push the rest of the African continent ahead, it being one of the most democratic states and the most economically powerful. But South Africa mm-hmm. refuses to embrace the rest of Africa uh, as characterized by its xenophobia. Yeah, it is like two steps forward, one step back. It's a catch-22. Run uh, people-driven regimes that are after the interests of the people regime that empower yeah. uh, the people, essentially. And uh, you, you did mention that we have precedents for that. You mentioned a couple of countries, and we have varying levels of, of democracy, and we all have different levels of, of political rule. Mm-hmm. And I think AU or the African uh, unity um, be a good opportunity to one, redefine what democracy means for the continent. 
-hmm. Yes. What democracy means for the continent, mm -hmm. what type of leadership the continent wants to embrace mm -hmm. without necessarily the influence of the West. Because what happens is when you are separate countries that are acting um, mm -hmm. alone, as standalone entities, you are very weak. You are, you are small nations. Mm -hmm. Africa at best is comprised of very small countries um, themselves up to a lot of foreign capital and neo-colonial forces because we cannot stand on our own. But then when we are united, then we can decide for ourselves how do we want this continent to be run and how do we want to interface with the rest of the world in terms of uh, FDI foreign direct investment, in terms of pumping um, of goods and all of this, in terms of labor and how labor moves and how production works in terms of how do you want to grow the agriculture of the continent? How do we grow, want to grow the natural uh, resource uh, portfolio of the continent? How do we want to exploit our waterfalls to produce electricity that will be supplied to everyone? And I think the capacity building comes from joint benchmarking, which uh, it is maybe an achievement that the AU is aiming, is moving towards right now, being able to have people who come together and share knowledge and expertise, yeah, in policing, in, uh, management of country sources, in fighting corruption, in uh, mm -hmm. providing of public goods like transport, infrastructure, and electricity, and water, uh, health, how do we tackle health and communicable diseases as a continent? And I think mm -hmm. this is an, an achievement and somewhere that um, a, a, gap, a gap that the AU could uh, feed into. Yeah, I think it's Gap, a gap most definitely the AU could feed in. You, you did bring up South Africa, and I think South Africa is, for me, always a very interesting. I mean, I'm in South Africa right now, and uh, mm -hmm. as, as a, as a Pan-Africanist, as a, as a Pan-African, uh, mm -hmm. I, I, I want to be able to move freely. I love to travel, and I want to be able to move freely within the continent. I want to move with less restrictions. I've, I've traveled almost the entire East African community. I was in Kenya for a month as well, sometime, and it's, it's always lovely now within the East African Community Federation, yeah, mm -hmm. which is a trade block that is aiming towards political integration as well. Mm -hmm. um, that we have these less restrictions on travel. Yeah. That you can move from Uganda to Rwanda, Uganda to Kenya with only a pass at the border yeah. um, or a passport, and you're good. And now we have the East African passport. There's one of I forgot the name of the writer, but it, but it, but he did give give a very good. You remember the founder of Nepad, um, mm -hmm. brilliant guy, philosopher, mm -hmm. uh, Pan African. He believed in the African Renaissance. So you find out that Af South Africa, given its economic standing and place in Africa, and how much it actually does owe to the rest of the African countries who helped uh, to, to fight for its freedom, to fight for its freedom, and uh, mm -hmm. as frontline states. Uh, is sort of the midwife for Pan-Africanism, or at least it's expected to be. But mm -hmm. I think over time, we've gotten more and more people who pay lip service mm -hmm. to the question of Pan-Africanism and never actually yeah. uh, assume their position. Yeah. So oh. you have the midwife who actually never assumes uh, the position of taking care of women um, and, and what, what they're working on. I think that's what South Africa has been. People are just talking uh, Ramaphosa was the president of the AU last year. And what is that about? What has he done? And I think that's why sometimes it's easier for me to identify with some of the, uh, just the bits of the ideology, for example, the EFF, because these guys believe in, uh, they believe that theirs is not a revolution in Africa, but it's a continental-wide 
Pan-Africanist vision. So I think for South the, Africa definitely needs to... Viewers, the EFF is, stands for the Economic Freedom Fighters. It's a political party in South Africa that advocates economic liberation, South Africans, especially after where Africans in South Africa have, say, freedom, but not true economic freedom. Yeah, it's a bit controversial, but we shall not be delving into that in this episode. Moving on to the African Union's Agenda 2063, which we've touched on a bit, whereby it aims for the economic and political integration of Africa by 2063, with things like a single air market to make it easier to fly from one African country to another, because some things whereby if I want to fly from, say, in Nigeria to Burkina Faso, I have connect through Paris. I cannot fly directly from a major city in one West African country to another major city in another West African country. I must connect through Europe, which really does not make sense. And then there's also the Africa continental free trade area, which seeks to establish a single market in Africa by allowing the free movement of goods, people, and capital and the AFCTA, which is, stands for the Africa Continental Free Trade Area, came into effect on 1st January 2021. Personally, I'm excited to see what the AFCTA will do for us within the next 10 years, but I am at the same time skeptical. So I'd say I have cautious optimism. And I say that because one, as much as we want to trade, what are we trading with each other when most African countries produce raw materials? Because recently I saw a story on routers whereby in Cote d'Ivoire, farmers have cocoa beans that they cannot sell because the pandemic has led to reduced consumption of chocolate. And they sell most of these coffee beans to, say, Belgium or France or the United States and demand is lower and they cannot process these beans and they cannot manufacture their own chocolate. So these, coffee, these cocoa farmers in Cote d'Ivoire are just going at a loss. And then mm-hmm. as much as we say we want to trade with each other, trade needs infrastructure. We need roads, we need railways, we need airports, we need seaports, we need fiber optic cables, we need power grids, we need viaducts, we need mobile cell towers for telecommunications, of which in some places on this continent is greatly lacking. So we need infrastructure in order to facilitate the AFCTA. And we also need to produce our own goods and manufacture things such yeah. that if if Cameroon is making chocolate, Cameroon can buy cocoa beans from Ghana. If Morocco yeah. has a large jewelry industry, Morocco can buy diamonds from Botswana. So we need to have our own industry such that we have demand for each other's products. 
So what's your view on the AFCT? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I think uh, just just as you uh, as, as you did mention it, one basically we have a bigger market because African countries, as um, small as they are, very small economies, uh, will will not deliver as much development as needs to be um, within the continent. And I think one the SCFTA offers us that big market of over three billion people. It opens up the continent. 1.2 billion people um, expected to increase. Now we have the uh, projecting that over 50 billion, uh, sorry, not not 50 billion, but over um, 250 or 500 million people are expected, I think, to be moving to cities by 2050, Mm -hmm. if I'm not mistaken. And Mm -hmm. so you you, you see all these opportunities for one, combined planning, Mm -hmm. but two, having like movement of not only lab, not only capital, but the factors of production. Because truth be told, it's easier to take capital away from this continent than it is for it to circulate within the continent. True. And, and, and that is a hard truth. Uh, but how do you trade? You trade from comparative advantages, right? You, you trade from competitive advantage. If, if, if Uganda has, and I think this is something that affected the East African community after its, its founding in 67. Mm-hmm. If Uganda has, uh, cotton and coffee mm-hmm. and tea and Kenya has cotton, coffee and tea. What are we going to trade? Okay. At this point, but then the other second, mm. I'd like to play devil's advocate. When mm. you talked about neoliberalism, but do you yourself realize that when you talk about comparative advantage, that is in self neoliberalism? <laughs> because that argument means basically the argument is mm. that. African countries should produce that which they're best at producing. So if African countries are best at producing raw materials, that's what they should produce. So that relegates us to a life of poverty and extraction. Then also in African countries say, we have minerals, therefore we are rich. Uh, say we are lying to ourselves and we are deluding ourselves when we say we are rich because we have minerals. Because... Mm-hmm. Minerals alone are not worth anything or are worth very little. What makes minerals valuable is refining them and making products out of them to sell. Switzerland does not grow any cocoa, but Switzerland imports Ghana and Cote d'Ivoire's cocoa and has world-class coffee brands. But Ghana and Cote d'Ivoire have not done the same for themselves. We are deluding ourselves by simply saying we have minerals. I think I think acknowledging the wealth of a continent is not a delusion, yeah. mm-hmm. and I think uh, understanding that one we, we we work with our strengths, yeah. So where we where we share our strength, we combine expertise, we combine knowledge, we combine processes, we combine machinery, yeah, and then uh, <laughs> moving from. Uh, just production of primary commodities and uh, raw materials to finished and manufactured goods through value addition. I don't think the two things are exclusive. Mutually exclusive. Uh, I don't think that that are mutually exclusive. When when you look at the -hmm. position that you're in and when you look at moving from um, production of raw materials to actually manufacturing. In any case, Mm-hmm. I, I I want to believe, and, and, and when you talk about neoliberalism, I, I don't see that the, con- the connection between 
-hmm. Africa being able to produce what is best at producing, being able to do and upgrade its production from primary products, uh, and neoliberalism. But I, I, I still think mm -hmm. we need to go back to if you want to connect neoliberalism to the present condition of our market, that mm -hmm. we've opened up our market to people with capital because we don't have capital. But then, if you have a continental free trade area, then we could have enterprises from South Africa investing or setting up plants in Uganda. Okay. Yeah, maybe to process the to process the very brilliant coffee that we have, it's or, think... or to process Ethiopian coffee. And uh, we are consuming coffee from the West. We're consuming coffee that's processed from outside Africa. And it's just different. Okay. It's just different. So if, if you have one single market with full movement of factors of production, then that is eased. And then we can move from actually primary products to value addition and manufacturing. Or I think to rephrase then, how free movement of those factors of production within ourselves were selectively allowing movement of those factors of production into Africa? Yes, let the factors of production move within the continent, let labor move, let people get work permits easily, um, let capital move within the continent. But it's important to acknowledge that when people want to invest in this continent, they invest under our own terms. Mm -hmm. That as Africa, we have collective bargaining power. That you're not just going to come and dump European goods in Africa because we are in some sort of funny, funny uh, trade agreement with you. So you have this situation where Kenya is signing a trade agreement with, with the United States. I hate that. Contrary to the provisions of the East African Community Federation. And the or outside the, of the, of the EAC. Mm -hmm. And then you have a country like South Africa, whereby mm -hmm. they, are, they are producing very good steel, mm -hmm. but then China is still coming and dumping its steel on the continent. Okay. So, with, of course, cheap labor. And so the steel from outside is outcompeting the steel on the continent. And I think this is working in so many different sectors. So, mm -hmm. they need to come and invest under our own conditions under our own terms. You can't come and dump goods on the continent when goods of similar standard are being produced here. And because now you, you've developed your capacities, you're using big machinery and using big factories, you now come and dump a bunch of clothes on the continent and you're disadvantaging local, local producers and entrepreneurs and they'll never grow. So I think there needs to be an emphasis on you investing on the continent. Who is the foreign investor as such? and under what conditions are they investing and where are they taking the money in kenya i remember you guys had uh sports pesa if i'm not mistaken and, and, yeah. and a bunch of companies there yeah. and you ask yourself where does the money that these companies make go okay. is it benefiting the people of kenya or are kenyans being uh derided into okay. becoming maniacs of, of betting and, okay. and all of this and yet capital is being taken out of the country i'll say this the two things you mentioned about Kenya, sport person and that American trade deal thing. Okay, well, say our current government is highly incompetent. And personally, I just want the president's second term to simply end next year. Mm. And we'll be done with him. Our current government is highly incompetent. Yes, because that's the same thing. Why is Kenya, this small economy, trying to negotiate a trade deal with a behemoth, that is the United States, yet Kenya can negotiate with 22 other African countries in the AFCTA. Mm. 
and of course already in that regard kenya is breaking international law because kenya has an obligation under the afct to uphold its rules so kenya is breaking international law by doing so but the funny thing again is is that again the african union is just silent while kenya is reneging on its agreements so that's a thing mm. then sport pesa also shows there is serious money money with a capital m to be made on this continent because sport pesa's main market was kenya but sport pesa is sponsoring english premier league teams and those are not cheap sponsorships sport pesa is sponsoring formula 1 teams and those are not cheap sponsorships again so sport pesa mm. was at some time collecting these basically hundreds of millions of dollars every month from gambling here in kenya and then taking that money to hungary it was it's actually a hungarian company and then taking that money around the world so apart from just sport pesa i think that really shows that there is a lot of money not just within consumers pockets it may not be a lot by each individual consumer but on aggregate there is a lot of because a lot of economies are informal so if you are to look at the true size of the economy plus the informal economy they would be larger but going back to the afct or not i said we need infrastructure then this brings me now to my next point of china in africa and what you said about imperialism if we need infrastructure to facilitate trade the people giving you this to us cheaply and at a fast rate is are the chinese some people have said oh china is coming to quote unquote colonize africa or carry out debt trap diplomacy again at us i'll play devil's advocate and ask for your thoughts why people are saying china is coming to colonize africa i think for once africans need to act like independent sovereign states that can make their own decisions and that can think for themselves because i don't understand why 60 years after colonialism no 60 years after independence you're saying people are coming to colonize you to me it doesn't make sense to me it seems you simply chosen to be exploited then secondly uh i feel like many okay some african countries have taken on debts for useless things and overpriced things due to corruption whereas if you look in some other countries they've managed to negotiate good deals with china or even other countries to build good infrastructure cheaply so what are your thoughts on this on china on china's increasing relationship with various african countries definitely i think it's or first not i think it's a move or it's a card that the west did not expect mm-hmm. uh it, it coming after those neoliberal policies and the structural adjustment programs of the 90s they they did not expect that they were actually opening up the african economy to another player 10 years later um china okay. uh and yeah we can we can see that chinese influence 
the entire African continent is growing. And I think why most African countries actually embrace China as a development partner was mm-hmm. simple. These guys say, what we, we, what we're only interested in money and we're only interested in doing business with you. We don't yeah. care about your politics. So even if you go yeah, and murder yeah. one another, you go yeah. misappropriate the funds that you borrowed from us, we don't care about you, you know? Go and do your thing as Africans, but we'll need our money back. Yeah. So I, I think that is why Africa started embracing China um, so much. In Uganda, I think one of the projects that really um, points to what some of this cooperation has been like was the Entebbe Express Highway. Mm-hmm. This highway is the most expensive project mm-hmm. uh, on the African continent because that was spent there, the money that was lost on that road, Mm-hmm. Just, I think, four kilometers of highway. Almost four billion. I, I don't know. Lots of money. Lots of money. <laughs> uh, we borrowed this from China. And uh, it's almost the most expensive uh, road project the continent has seen. Because be of just the amount of money that I've Okay, to be honest, as a Kenyan, I've always viewed Ugandans as funny. <laughs> I don't know. Uh-uh. I, I think Kenya's done dumb things with Chinese debts, but what? Four kilometers of road alone? Okay. I, I think, I mean, it, it, it's quite hilarious. Uh, it's quite hilarious when you, when you actually think about it. Then, then, mm-hmm. then you hear that China wants to take over a port mm-hmm. in Kenya uh, mm-hmm. uh, because of just how much influence they now have, that they may actually have legal claims. Okay, or, but say, is that the fault of the Chinese or the fault of Africans? I'm of the view it's the fault of Africans because yes. China is in the interest of business. China will do what China wants to do in their interest. So if we don't look out for our own interests, to me, we have only ourselves. Exactly. Problem. Exactly. It's, it's, it's diplomacy. It's diplomacy and it's um, realism. Mm-hmm. Every, every state is after its own self-interest. Yeah. Uh, when, when, when the United States comes to Africa, they're not looking after your interest. The question is, how can we benefit from you? Yesterday, I was watching a video um, on, mm-hmm. on, on YouTube about uh, just, just, just a comedy skit of this African guy who is moving with this investor, of this diplomat to the US and they're saying, help us, help us. Our people, our people are poor, our people are starving, our people don't have medicine. And this guy is like, you know, the US acknowledges being very diplomatic about it. The US acknowledges your challenges, but then we cannot help you about it. And then this guy tells him, but we have oil. And he says, what, what do you need again? Tells them we're fighting terrorists. And then he sees all the planes and everything, all this military machinery coming almost in an instant when he tells the diplomat from the US that they have oil. And that is just what it is. People are after their own interests. And Africa, we also have to understand that until, one, we realize that Africa will not develop in a vacuum. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But for us to develop out of that vacuum, we have to unitedly, um, pursue and front our own interests. Part of that is how do we create an investment environment Mm -hmm. that will will depend, that will depend on you alone and how do we build some of the infrastructure using the capacity that we've managed to build over the years internally as a continent. Mm -hmm. Let's look at the project that Tanzania is doing, the Julius Nyerere, uh, Julius Kambaravi Nyerere hydropower station. It's a partnership between Egypt, uh, Egypt and Tanzania. Mm-hmm. And this is something that has really helped. Uh, so how do you engage locally with the expertise that you're to develop 
you look at the, the, the green, not the green belt, uh, I forgot the name of that, in, in South Korea, and how those guys started by building their own roads oh. and bringing in expertise from outside and saying, teach us how to do it, we're gonna watch you, but then we're going to do it uh, using the model that you've given us, but then we will develop our capacity over time. So I think it's that sort of utilizing internal capacity, but then also bettering how, how we're using this money. Okay. I mean, how are we using Chinese money? Or are we going to reach a point whereby mm -hmm. uh, we, will we will need, again, the intervention of China in giving some of our debt, like it happened with the, 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 the Bristol Wood, Bristol Wood, whatever, uh, the Bristol Wood institution, the IMF, the World, and the World Bank. Bank. Yeah. Yeah. When, okay. when, when, yeah. when we needed um, interventions like the highly um, indebted poor countries initiatives to actually bail us out of the debts that we are we were imminently defaulting. So, Mm -hmm. I think Africa needs to be very careful uh, in the way we take our debts and to make sure that we avoid a repeat of what happened in the 2000s, okay. a repeat of having where we reach a state and borrowing is no longer sustainable and we are in a position where we cannot pay our debts. It's going to enslave us very seriously. Oh, okay. For our viewers, I think it's easy to find information out there of talking about how... China is bad, China this, China that. But there's this, there's this guy, he's called Guide Moore. He's the former minister of public works of Liberia. And he's given several talks about what China is doing within Africa. And we see that the largest smartphone maker in Africa, which is Transion, owns about 50% of the smartphone market in, in Africa with brands like Infinix and Techno. Mm. And also we mm. see that the largest streaming music streaming app in Africa is actually a Chinese company. It's called Boomplay. And my last mm. phone was a techno phone and it had boom play and I was like, what is this? I never really paid attention to it. But when I found out that it's actually a Chinese company and you can listen to music from all over Africa on boom play, because something they deliberately did is that they went around Africa signing rights to the music, to African music in order mm. to encourage African listeners and also international brands like sony or universal studios or columbia records mm. so mm. when we see such things that when the chinese invest in africa it's not for quick returns when westerners come here they want fast money but the chinese are looking like 20 30 years into the future mm. and apart from the chinese there is increased quote-unquote interest in africa from so many people from this India, there is Turkey, there is Russia, Japan, South Korea, the European Union. So what's your view on this increased interest in Africa that people, I don't know, all of a sudden it's like everyone wants to come here to invest and do business and have partnerships and give African students scholarships to go study in their countries because more and more I see international African students go and study in places like China or Turkey or Malaysia. What's your view on this 
interest in Africa? Is it genuine? Is it nefarious? I think the interest in Africa is indicative of the progress that you've made so far. And mm -hmm. uh, as you said, the aggregate uh, demand, the aggregate market mm -hmm. is available. You have a market of 1.2 billion people uh, that is, is up for grabs. And these people are moving and, and, and you have a people who are going to be exposed to all sorts of things that have, that have never been exposed to. You have governments who want to build infrastructure. You talked of the phone. You have companies that want to set up the inter internet connections, internet connectivity to places that have never been connected, people who have never, and you realize that internet penetration is increasing on the continent at, at, at a very fast rate. Our economies are growing relatively. Uh, and this economy, for example, has been growing almost at a consistent rate of 7% per year per annum. And somehow we're among the five fastest growing economies in the world, and so many other economies in Africa are growing. And this is increasing wealth in the hands of people. And these are all opportunities for other actors outside the continent to come in uh, and, and work. But then I just want to go back to the point uh, that you mentioned. And of course, it's a justification for the, the, the SCFTA as well, that you have a bigger market of people now. Um, so why can't you utilize the market that we have internally instead of allowing only external players to benefit and African countries are not benefiting from one another? So you, you mentioned, I think, TransUnion, if I'm not mistaken, yes. the, the Chinese company. But then now we also have a local producer, Coltan, the mineral that is used for, for the production of most of these phones from the DRC. It's from the DRC, one of the poorest countries in the world with uh, a wealth of resources, the paradox. Mm -hmm. But then now we have, um, I think I was taking a flight recently when I was coming back to South Africa mm -hmm. and I met a gentleman who was coming to meet um, Mr. Ramaphosa to set to, to set up a factory for phones. I, I don't know if you've heard about the Mara Group. The Mara Group that also started manufacturing their own smartphones. Mm -hmm. So the question is simple: If you have all the resources that we need mm -hmm. to manufacture phones within the continent, and he told me that the market just this year for for phones on the continent would be about two billion. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the continent would need about two billion mobile phones this year alone billion this is all potential that's why you have players like techno you have players like techno coming in and giving you giving us cheap phones that people can afford because the market is there the market is there for phones. so how do we support local companies like mara yeah to be able to produce i think they have a plant in rwanda they have a plant i don't know if they've started their plant in south africa as well to be able to produce, but above all, to be able to engineer. So how do we develop our capacity uh, to be ahead of, of the technological trends uh, of, of, of the century? And how do we develop our capacity to satisfy the needs of the market and the needs of the growing economies? Uh, how do we build cross brands? How do we build um, companies that can uh, build a big business that can manufacture, that can construct dams that can build infrastructure. I think those are the questions that Africa needs to be answering at the moment. How do you think we could assist Africa for own profit cause extent? I feel that from various countries, though I think this somewhat varies from country to country, have a level of 
inferiority such that sees the potential and the greatness of various countries on this continent but we fail to see it cells so whenever one wants to come do business here how do we ensure it's for mm. our benefit and we are not exploited because in light of this increased interest it's worth noting the sheer historic inequality and even sheer mm. predation of africa's past interactions with the outside world okay i, I think fair question we need to move past the sentiment that's mm -hmm. for sure mm -hmm. uh, we, we, need, we need to move past the politics of sentimentality and um, of course decolonize our minds yeah europeans are not superior to us they have never been superior to us most of those countries may be more developed but they need us more than we need them uh, and that's why they keep coming here and that's why they have more of an interest in, in, in the politics of Africa. Uh, they need us more than we need them. That is for sure. So I think, how do we create an investment environment that allows other people to come and uh, invest in economies, but at the same time not disadvantage us? I think it's a type of deals. It's a simple, the type of deals that we sign. Mm -hmm. uh, I'll, I'll give you an example of Uganda because that's the context with which I'm most familiar. This company, I think from Israel, uh, or some uh, other country there, some funny country, I don't remember. <laughs> These guys come in, uh, they promise us that they're going to create 1,000 jobs and that they're going to source the materials locally. I think they wanted to pack mm. beef. They wanted to pack beef, open a factory that packs beef and everything. Mm -hmm. What the government does, because we have a very good uh, environment for investors and because we are so open and because of uh, new a uh, structural adjustment, we give them the land in the industrial park. They come, they build a factory, they employ like 10 people and they start maximizing production. So how do we limit this? And, and that's a sad reality for most African countries. People come, employ a few people because they're not bound to. And the worst thing is in the first five or 10 years, depending on the country, they most likely will have a tax holiday, right? Yeah. So this is a they, period where the company can maximize, the company can suppress local producers who are doing similar things uh, and outcompete them in the market because they have a tax holiday and because uh, they, they have a lot of money and they're employing few people. So investing on our own terms, because it's Africa, it's our land. So invest in our own terms. What Let's draft you? agreements that will... Terms what? like employment, what? Because that's the, that's the biggest um, issue, mm -hmm. employment. Uh, how much capital are these guys getting? We need to look into that. How much capital are these guys getting? And how much can we get back as a government in terms of tax? How do we widen our tax base? Because mm -hmm. uh, these people have to be taxed. So no, no ridiculous tax holidays. Uh, and giving people land and them not upholding their, what? their, their standards of production. But if I just link um, this to the sentiment that, Af that the Africans feel Europeans are superior, I think for me, I look at it from the economic standpoint, right? So if, if you're an African country that does, doesn't have a good investment climate as such, and who defines what a good climate for foreign investors is, mm -hmm. all of these indices in place are designed 
mm. uh, Western actors, right? Mm. No, if you want foreign investment, go to Kenya. How do they know? And who come? Who defines what a good investment, uh, climate and environment is? But if Africa was speaking one voice, and we link this back to uh, African unity, if we were speaking one voice, as far as investment in the continent is concerned, then we would be able to uh, ask. And, and, and of course, most of these companies tend to neglect their responsibility to the environment. Yeah. So they're dumping a lot in our rivers, they're dumping in our lakes, and they just don't care about the amount of pollution that they have because they're white babies, right? We're white babies, and when we see white people, uh, we, we are blown, you know? We, we've opened up our country, we've opened up our continents, they get away with so many things. And even the other perspective is, in Uganda, we've had to expel so many Asians. We have, we've had to deport so many Asians because they come in the name of mm. investors. Mm-hmm. And mm. what do they start doing? They start making chapatis on the streets and mm. competing with local Ugandans for making chapatis or, or opening small mm. and scale businesses that essentially should be done by what? Mm-hmm. by the locals and the nationals. So okay. if you're coming, come, build something that's going to benefit the people, that's going to provide jobs, mm-hmm. and that's going to uh, build on our manufacturing capacity. If you can come and bring bring a plant that will transform our cocoa into chocolate, we welcome you, we give you the land uh, on, on a conditional basis, you employ people from within the continent, you build their expertise, and then when the time is right, you leave. Personally, I think to an extent Africans want to have their cake, eat it. They want benefits of capitalism without investing in true, truly capitalistic structures. Even we are both citizens of the East African community, but there are regularly issues between Kenya and Tanzania, between Uganda and Rwanda, Kenya and Uganda. Because parents live in Malaba near the Kenyan border in Uganda. The border. And, yeah. And a lot of trucks go there when they're like taking things to Uganda. And there's a long line at customs. If we truly had a common market like the ES, East African community pretends that we do. If something was imported mm. from the port of Mombasa in Kenya, uh, Uganda, the Ugandan government should trust the Kenyan government that we have common standards of quality for goods. So once they have been approved by the customs in Kenya, Uganda, the Ugandan government should trust the decision of the Kenya government and freely let those trucks and their products into our country. So basically with that statement where I was going is that I think as much as we have this caution about especially outside forces or people from outside Africa even just within a neighboring mm. African country coming to live in mm. or do business in our country. I think mm. if we did not embrace each other and the outside world, we would have built mm. as a people. But I think that is a more of a cultural and psychological question than it is an 
economic question because think that thinking small and do not want to strengthen ourselves and grow such that we compete with each other and compete with the outside world and go out into the world to compete in other countries on their terms because if you want people to come in on our terms we should also be able to go out and compete on the terms of others uh, so i think it's more of a confidence and a psychological question than it is economic i think we can also just look 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 at the um, economics of it because the economics of it is that it comes down to the nature of the goods that we actually do produce right mm-hmm. uh, it comes down to the type of as, as we said we're mainly producing primary products and uh mm-hmm. as primary products we are having very limited let's let's just back up a little bit and look at the fact that the u.s china trade war mm-hmm. why is that china and the u.s are, are, are having this sort of um scaffolds and competitions economically it's mm-hmm. because they're in a position where they can affect the trade of one another, right? But China is a big economy. China is an economy of how many people? Uh, you, you correct me. How many people are in China? Uh, about, what? Three about billion? 1.3 billion. 1.3 How many are we on the continent? How many are we on uh, in Africa? About 1 billion. So it's about 1 billion. Yeah. So there is no way in which you expect South Africa to go and compete with China or to even do anything with China mm-hmm. as South Africa or Uganda with 45 million people not necessarily, with the capital that it has. Not necessarily competing with China itself, even competing with China right now. Like I said, it's about strengthening and building yourself to the point that you can compete and you don't have to compete with china you can compete with the uae for tourists you can compete with mm-hmm. argentina to export beef or any other thing you can compete with a myriad of other countries in a myriad of other ways and by going out into the world to compete is say reaching to a point whereby we have multinational company from guinea bissau going to do business in costa rica or something like that mm. and i think yeah that, that that when you look at it from that perspective uh you realize as a continent we're not producing as much yeah our production is just generally very low. So production, low, and the quality of production, low, because we're exporting what? Raw materials. So we cannot significantly impact, uh, we cannot significantly shape the economies of other countries. But also, you mentioned tourism. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we sometimes focus too much on tourists coming from outside the continent and bringing in money. We mm-hmm. do not focus also on money circulating internally. Mm-hmm. And then this is where border restrictions. I, I have a summer holiday coming up in June, God willing. Mm-hmm. And I want to be able to travel the continent because I have friends from all over the continent. And me, I just love to travel. So move around, interact, see how the politics is going, see how people are living, enjoy yourself. Mm-hmm. But I can't move five countries without spending like what? $300 on just visas. 
Mm-hmm. Why is that the case? Mm-hmm. And yet this is one continent. Uh, mm-hmm. and, 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 and if I'm traveling to the Victoria Falls, I'm probably taking money there as well. My little money could mm-hmm. improve the living conditions of the people around the Victoria Falls in, in, in Zimbabwe. Mm-hmm. So I think it, it comes down to the unity of the continent. The UAE has managed that. The UAE has managed to set in place conditions. Mm-hmm. Uh, investment and their money to establish themselves as a single unit and i think it's something that china as well one market of 1.5 1.1 billion people point something uh and africa as well should consolidate itself as a single a single market mm-hmm. but as a market that um if you have to embody what the eu has done mm-hmm. less restrictions on travel so so you find out that some Someone can travel from England to Italy just mm-hmm. by road, you know. The infrastructure is there, the roads are there. If you look at the East African community, we have the standard gauge railway project, phenomenal project. You were mentioning the ports, uh, the ports, so having the same rules of procedure, reducing the checks. So many countries, of course, are landlocked, and that means they have to access the ports from other countries that actually have coastlines. Mm-hmm. Uh, that needs infrastructure, that needs less. Um, Previously, before the ESC, I think goods from Mombasa to Uganda, up in Dar es Salaam, mm-hmm. Uganda used to take like, what, 14 days. Now that has been cut almost in half, almost a quarter, mm-hmm. uh, because of less checks, because of um, sort of harmonized custom uh, custom policies and, you know, reduced tariff and non-tariff barriers to trade. And I think mm-hmm. in 2016, we were trading over $200 billion. Uh, Mm-hmm. Or one point two billion dollars. I don't remember the figure exactly within the East African community, and that figure can only increase. Mm-hmm. So more political mm-hmm. wins, less conflicts, funny conflicts between Uganda and Kenya, and us closing borders to one another. Mm-hmm. I think would really cut it for this continent. Then to wrap up, I'll talk about how Africa can have a military-industrial complex and intelligence sharing because i firmly believe that for the salvation of our people we need guns we need guns to be able to protect ourselves and threaten others as well because if you're being very realistic western countries have carried out 22 coups throughout this continent but some of them supported by France, mm-hmm. some of them supported by Belgium. And I want to believe mm-hmm. if we had a ballistic missile system in Tunisia that could bomb the south of France for carrying out a coup in Burkina Faso, then the French would think twice before messing with us. And a good segue into this is that South Africa had nuclear weapons, surprising. Mm. And but South Africa built these nuclear weapons under the apartheid regime. And just before apartheid ended, they dismantled these nuclear weapons. People mm. say this story, oh, South Africa destroyed their nuclear weapons for the betterment of humanity. It's the only country in the world to do so. But I feel like that's just a PR ploy because We know the American and British government supported the apartheid regime. They just did not want an African country to have nuclear weapons. But 
there are times where India and Pakistan have their own disputes and even threaten to nuke each other, but India and Pakistan threatening to use nuclear weapons against each other does not bother the West. And even when you see things like America's invasion of Iraq and Afghanistan, I'd say mm. the only thing keeping the people of North Korea from being massacred wholesale by the American government is that they have nuclear weapons. So quite simply, we need guns and we need lots of guns. What's your view on this? Uh, brother, very, very interesting. Very interesting. I, 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 lo- I love your views on the issue. Um, if, if, if we are to be, if we are to be a, propo- a preponderant force, uh, we to have that preponderance in, preponderance in the, mm-hmm. the global African climate. I mean, one of the aims of the Agenda 2063 is Africa as a strong, united, and resilient global player, right? Global player and partner, like at the table. We don't have any representation at the African uh, United Nations Security Council, and we are busy crying that uh, we get. No, we do uh, have representation in South Africa. We get a veto, but why? We do have representation at the. I mean, we we do have representation, but we are not part of the P5. We're we're not part of the P5. We are quite insignificant as far as those decisions are concerned. I don't see that as a problem in itself because. There are several other countries that are not a part of the five permanent members. So I don't really see that itself as an issue. No, that, that is fair. That is fair and it's very uh-huh. understandable. Mm-hmm. But we, we need to understand global politics and how mm-hmm. you gain power. Uh-huh. Why are the P5 the P5? Mm-hmm. Because they have certain things that the rest of the world does not have. Mm-hmm. If, 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 if one decided to declare war on the other, that would probably become a, go- a global conflict. You remember the what we now call the world wars. The world wars were fought in Europe mainly, and mm-hmm. people want to make it look like it was a war that was fought by everyone for everyone. Yeah. So I think I think if 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 Africa truly wants to be in a position of political influence and mm-hmm. a true global player, as we're saying, mm-hmm. we have to come together. One, two, show the world that we have the resources. The nuclear energy uh, and, and all these things have been discovered in so many places in Africa. But mm-hmm. simple question, if tomorrow Uganda decided to start building a nuclear weapon, mm-hmm. what would happen? Okay, I'm not the saying... US, the US uh, I, I, I'm not the US saying we build nuclear weapons. No, <laughs> that, that, that's not what I'm saying. Nuclear weapons also, they're not the only type of weapons that are necessary. Yes. I'd say if you look at yes. Turkey, Though we could argue Turkey got a lot of this weaponry from the West itself, but yes, whether you make your own weapons or buy them from each other, mm. I'd say in the long and short of it, whether we'll make it ourselves or buy it, we need weapons. Okay. Yeah. Can, can I just say something to that? Of course, I, I, I did not imagine that you are saying we should build nukes. No, that was just that was just, just, uh, that was just yeah. a side story. But no, I have no way, <laughs> shape, or form said we need nuclear weapons. But I have no, said no, no problem. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean that, that that's too fair enough. That's too fair enough. Uh, mm-hmm. If uh, if we want to truly be at the table, mm-hmm. uh, we need to have a reason why we should be on that table. Uh, 
But as far as the military industrial complex goes, mm-hmm. I think one of the disheartening things, of course, is that as African countries, we spend so much money, our defense budgets are very hefty. Uganda, I think last year we received over $400 million in 2020 mm-hmm. from the United States just for, 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 for defense and the military. Mm-hmm. And our military budget keeps increasing. I don't know if it's more, it must be more than the health budget. What? Second. Okay. The other day I was seeing, um, I was seeing tankers that, that were bought from Turkey at $20 million each patrolling the streets of Kampala during the election. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think I saw a group of Kenyan MPs, if I'm not mistaken, in Russia, uh, checking out some of the guns that they had. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and these are the people whom citizens are paying taxes to go to Russia and start checking out uh, all these guns that they're using. No doubt, mm-hmm. we, need, uh, we, need, we need weapons. We need weapons to, to fight terrorism, to fight conflict. To, to, to keep regimes accountable uh, as a continent, mm-hmm. unitedly. But I think if you look at it from the business standpoint, mm-hmm. as you said, the resources that we need to make these weapons are within the continent. Mm-hmm. We can make them from here, we can source them locally, and it can boost our own capacity mm-hmm. internationally. Mm-hmm. If we have an option between buying something expensively and producing it and, and, and depending on the West by doing so and producing mm-hmm. it locally using resources at our disposal. I think we should always uh, pursue the latter option. But I think building an industry, a military industri- industrial complex is what has driven nations like the United States. Most of the wars that, were, that, that they fought in, in, in Vietnam, in all these places, okay. there were these um, industries that they had who were driving the ideology that uh, you know, when these weapons need to be used, they, they fueled some of these wars. Okay, so so is your fear then, as much as yes, we need weapons for practical reasons, such a thing could lead to a militarized and imperialistic mm-hmm. society. I don't know about internal imperialism within the continent. Um, I don't know about our ability as a continent to go out there and start conquering people, but I just gave that as a context of the West. Mm-hmm. I don't know how much we actually need weapons as such, uh, the production of our own weapons. I know that even countries like Russia and, uh, and the US trade between each other with weapons. Can I throw uh, in a wild I know that theory that? Can I throw in a wild theory that uh, one of my guests once suggested here, it's sort of like if we were to develop a military industrial complex and say an African country decided to be imperialistic, they posited this theory that what if one day other African countries decided to occupy Congo DRC and then just exploit it wholesale with their military capabilities. So that with that theory having been put out there. So would that be one of the fears you'd say of having a military industrial mm-hmm. complex? I think uh, it has happened. I mean, what you're talking about is not an assumption. Yeah. Uh, Uganda, Uganda intervened in DRC and, and we stole timber, we stole minerals. Mm-hmm. We're paying, we're paying money. We're, we're paying money. We were taken before, I think, the, 
the International Court of Justice. So such a situation would intensify. Intervening in that. Yeah, and, and, and it's, it's no secret that Uganda's military is quite uh, uh, developed and advanced. You have weapons, you're being trained by the US, and, 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 and they supply us a hefty lot of weapons. And uh, mm -hmm. I think even when you look at Amazon, mm -hmm. yeah, when you look at Amazon, so I think if there's a really a need to develop a military index in that complex, mm -hmm. it is for it is for less dependence uh, on, on, on the West for such uh, weapons and it's for the fight against terrorism. But I think as it is already, Africa spends a lot mm. on defense and the military. And, and, and where, where, where are we using most of this material? We're using it on our own citizens. And that's the sad part. Okay. We're not using it to protect, we're not using it to protect ourselves against external aggression. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's to prop up uh, despotic regimes. Okay. Power. Okay. As that that's also another concern. Uh, so another concern, yes, is that there would not be enough civilian oversight over these militaries due to uh, inadequate structures or inadequate democracy or state capacity or whatever in order to. So I'd say. Things could get really ugly really quick. And but unfortunately, we still need guns, whether we like it or not. And threats like terrorism would still force us in this direction to some extent. Yeah, no doubt. No doubt we need guns. Uh, but I think as far as civilian oversight goes. Mm -hmm. So I I did uh, I recently did some research and wrote a study guide uh, mm -hmm. about uh, did a study about um, the entire topic was curtailing state policing power during crisis in order to safeguard human rights. Right? Mm -hmm. How do you reduce? How do you curtail the power of the state during a crisis in order to safeguard human rights? And it's, it's a very thin wire to move on. You know, how do you reduce the power of the state and what can the state do and what can't they do during mm -hmm. a crisis? And you have to, I, I try to trace the origin of why we have very limited police uh, oversight, mm -hmm. oh, sorry, uh, civilian oversight over police and over the military. And then you see this breakdown in, in civilian uh, military relations. Mm -hmm. Why? So I think one of the people who explains this very well is um, Uganda's former leader of opposition, mm -hmm. Dr. Kiza Besigye, um, who, and, and it's, just, it's just history, basic history, that for most African countries, not the same everywhere, for most African countries, mm -hmm. you have a situation where you have a group of armed men who take up a gun, then they go and they take power. Mm -hmm. And so, you, you have a situation where we, we, we are official states, yes, official states, whom the British forced together, and the British were ruling by the gun because there were a few, the British, not the British, the colonizing, uh, whoever the imperial powers were, depending on the context, mm -hmm. they come, they're doing it with the gun because there are few people in Zimbabwe, there are like 250,000 white people, that's like less than 3% of the population, and they have to use force to keep ruling. But after, what do they do? They hand over power to another group of elites who also have guns, right? In Uganda, it was Museveni's revolution in, in 1986. He took over power through a coup. Mm -hmm. And so in Uganda, 
and that means you now have basically the military rule you have um, ruled by what by gunmen uh, and, and what does this mean if you have ruled by gunmen and and if you have a country with uganda's history where you had all these schools then it's hard for citizens to keep them accountable because they're constantly in fear yeah uh, so you have to look at the different contexts of the of african countries and realize that most of those countries where they're having military rule or military state there is very limited potential for civilian accountability because the state is ruled by what? By gunmen. And uh, when the state is ruled by gunmen, power is not with the people. In Uganda, you had a situation where, uh, in this most recent election, the army generals were saying, they were saying they could not salute Bobby Wine, uh, Robert Chagulan, the, 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 the main leader, the, the main opposition candidate, if he had become president. Mm -hmm. So if the military, which is supposed to be for the, a national army and a national uh, accountable to the people and the government, cannot salute a person who let's say was democratically elected to become president then i think um therein therein lies the challenge therein lies the challenge okay uh i think for listeners thank you for listening and that is all we have for this episode of the funny and i'd like to thank olemo for being our guest for this week